Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. I think that what's going on here is not just political and cultural. I think it's spiritual warfare. I mean, look, Pope Benedict said in 1969 when he was just Father Ratzinger, he warned that the day was coming when the church would lose all its wealth, all its privileges, all its power, and it would lose maybe even most of its uh, of its parishioners. But this will be a time of purification, and those who remain with the church, those who remain with our Lord through this dark night will be a light to the world because they will have been tested and they'll know why they believe, and they're willing to suffer anything for the sake of, of our Lord. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. That was Rod Dreher from my interview coming up. He's the best-selling author of The Benedict Option. He has a new book. Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod will talk to me about his new book, which warns Americans about the threat of a totalitarian future unless there is successful resistance. We are also in a great spiritual battle, according to Rod Dreher, and it's for the freedom of humanity and the soul of a nation. Rod reminds us how one church leader warned long ago about the future for the Catholic Church. Well, it's dire stuff. Will it come to pass? We'll have to wait and see. But this is the sort of thing that we are being forced to accept. uh, And also, there's the whole problem of racial ideology, which is taking over everywhere. In Christianity, we are taught that God judges people on the basis of their heart. God teaches us to judge people, not on the basis of the color of their skin, but on their actions and on what's in their heart. But this new racist ideology that's coming out under the Orwellian name of anti-racism does just the opposite. It, It says that white people are guilty of white privilege and white supremacy simply by virtue of being white, and on and on and on. Rod Dreher is a New York Times best-selling author. His new book examines the battle for control of our institutions and traditional way of life in America, the fundamental attacks on religion and faith. Live Not By Lies takes its inspiration from the late Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn's call to challenge ideological tyranny. Rod Dreher traveled to the former Soviet bloc to exhaustively research his new book and talk to former dissidents. Rod Dreher's insights are both compelling and chilling for anyone who fears a totalitarian takeover. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Basketball court all wet because the players kept dribbling on it. <laughs> the dad joke, corny, grown worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Well, I hope you're all doing well. Keep the faith. My guest in a wee moment is the New York Times best-selling author, Rod Dreher, who'll talk about his totally absorbing new book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod is a senior editor at the American Conservative and author of many books and pieces, including the brilliant Benedict Option, we began our conversation with Rod Dreher's take on the state of affairs in the Catholic Church today. It seemed like an interesting and appropriate place to begin. Well, it's a 
It's a very difficult situation, uh, to put it mildly. I think that leaving aside the the scandals, and as you and I speak, it, it has come out very recently that Cardinal Betu in Rome is accused of having uh, having sent Vatican funds secretly to Australia to uh, to buy testimony to harm Cardinal Pell in this uh, railroad sham of a trial he was put through, and thank God he was finally released from prison. But, um, you know, if that's true, if they can make those charges stick, that is an unbelievable scandal. But it shows to you how high up the corruption goes. But I think much more at the at the level where most people live, the the faith is in great decline. Here in the United States, uh, the Catholic Church loses about six people for every one who comes into the church. And this is unsustainable over time. Uh, I, I believe that you know, if you look at the statistics, not only are young people leaving the church, but those who remain, so many of them, and this is true in Protestant churches as well, don't really understand what the church teaches and why it should mold their conscience. So uh, I, I believe that we, uh, you know, I, as you know, I'm not a Catholic, uh, but I'm certainly very sympathetic to the Catholic Church. I believe that it is the bedrock of Western civilization, and as goes the Catholic Church, so goes the West. I believe that the Catholic Church is in for a long period of struggle. Pope Benedict talked about this. I wrote about it in the Benedict Option. And uh, I, I was speaking recently to a friend of mine who has worked all his life within the institutional church. And he told me that he's spending the rest of his life trying to build up the church at the local level uh, because he doesn't have confidence that the institutional church is going to have what it takes to survive what's coming. So that's a very dire uh, prediction. But, you know, as the people of Ireland know, the Catholic people of Ireland know, everything can collapse very quickly. Last year when I was in Poland, John, talking to Poles, Polish Catholics for my book, Live Not By Lies, I was absolutely astonished to hear young Poles, practicing Catholics in their 20s, say that within 10 years, 20 years tops, Poland is going to go the same way as Ireland. Now, for somebody like me, I'm 53 years old. I was raised in the John Paul II generation. Uh, Poland has always been this, this fortress of Catholicism in a secularizing continent. To think that even Poland is on the verge of falling it's incredibly depressing. What is the cause of that in Poland? We can talk about Ireland. I'm from Ireland originally. I've lived in America for three decades. So I see things from a distance and I'm just as shocked as you are at what has happened in Ireland and what you're telling me now about Poland. Oh, yeah. Well, when I, I talk to Poles about it, a big part of it is the fact that the young, the ones who were raised in the post-communist generation, they've had full access to Western media and social media. And so they've been hit by the same sort of uh, ideas and practices that have affected the youth and the younger generations in America and Western Europe. But I think there's a particular problem there in Poland that I, I wouldn't have known about had I not gone there. And talking to these young people and also to some older priests, they tell me that the Polish bishops and the institutional church rested on its laurels too much. I mean, it, it performed very well uh, in the resistance against communism. Communism was defeated, and then they sat back and were fat and happy and thought that things were going to be like this forever. They failed to see how rapidly things were changing in the world itself and in their part of the world, and simply were not prepared for the uh, the radical loss of faith that's coming with the, the younger generation. So uh, they, uh, it was amazing to be over there and listen to these young people, and in a couple of cases, even older priests talk about how angry they are at the bishops for just being complacent. And uh, I, I did beat this monk when I was over there at a, the, mon the Benedictine Monastery of Tainietz, which is near Krakow, a famous Polish monastery, he told me that he was about to start a Benedict Option Foundation to try to uh, educate 
poles and form ways of life, communal ways of life, where they can really go deep in the faith and be resilient for what's to come. And I just the other day I saw online, this monk has actually done it. So there are seeds of renewal in Poland, but I think Poland is probably going to have to go through a terrible reckoning before these seeds become more general. I know St. John Paul was instrumental in helping remove the communist yoke from his ancestral homeland. But when he looked out at what had been achieved some years later, he wasn't exactly enamored, let's say, with how the new Poland was taking shape. I guess he was taken aback by the embrace of mass consumerism and some of the developments he saw around. Has that played any part in it? Poles just rushing out to embrace the same values that have been corrupting many nations in the Western world? Oh, that's exactly what happened. I recall, uh, I believe, reading a speech that John Paul gave in one of his final trips to Poland in which he chastised the Polish nation. He said, look, you didn't come through and, and defeat one materialist ideology just to turn around and accept a, a, a softer form of it, you know, because that's how he saw consumerism and hedonism. It's certainly preferable to communism, but it was still a materialist anti-Christian ideology. And that's what's happened over there. You know, I when I was in Hungary last year, John interviewing people for this book, uh, I was going around the city of Budapest with my translator, a young Catholic woman, married with uh, one child. And she said, you know, it's so difficult for me to find other Catholics my age. Uh, the faith has all but collapsed among my generation. And you, you look around and the only thing that most of my people of my generation want is for Hungary to become just like Sweden, mm. you know, full of personal liber uh, liberty, hedonism, uh, no, no religion, no tradition, nothing but consumerism and fun in life. But you can't keep a civil civilization going on that, John. You and I both know that. History shows that. But unfortunately, the, the people of uh, Eastern Europe may have to learn this on their own. Well, you mentioned Ireland uh, just a moment ago. It has shed many of its cherished values. It embraced the culture of death. And now it's talking about assisted suicide. A bill has been introduced in the parliament. We could trace this back to the 2008 financial crisis. Irish voters were grasping at straws and elected very extreme far-left lawmakers who moved very fast to get a lot of this legislation in place. That's right. There was a, a real upheaval in Irish society and, and all around the world, but especially in Ireland, uh, by that financial crash. And it, I, I think it revealed a lot of the foundational cracks in, in that society, much as COVID has done here and, and perhaps overseas. I, I, you know, when I, I wrote this book, Live Not By Lies, I know we'll be getting to it in a second, but uh, it does prophesy, um, not in any sort of religious sense, but just Reading the signs of the times politically and culturally, it prophesies that uh, that the Christians are going to be in a very difficult, even persecutorial uh, situation. But uh, when I first finished the manuscript back in March, I, I thought, how in the world am I going to sell Americans on this idea that things are as bad as they are? Because uh, by then I knew the book was going to come out in September, and I said, I'm going to have to be thinking hard about this. Well, then COVID hit. And then George Floyd hit, and then our the American cities exploded in race riots, and now within institutions such as uh, universities, corporations, and so forth, this radical identity politics ideology is taking over. Well, now people know that how, how bad things are. I don't really have to work hard to convince them of that. This goes back to the Ireland thing, John, the, the 2008 situation you mentioned, because uh, it was an unveiling, you know, uh, catastrophes can be unveilings, can be an apocalypse in the literal sense, the Greek sense, which is to say an unveiling. Uh, in 2008, people were able to see 
in Ireland how things really were. It's like the tide went out. Similarly with COVID, we have seen in, in this country, the United States, how weak society is in many cases and how I think uh, susceptible we are to totalitarian manipulation. Maybe we can get into that in a bit. The suddenness of what happened in Ireland is extraordinary. I mean, here in the 60s, 70s, you had 80% or so of the faithful attending church every Sunday and there was um, religious devotion was high. They Even at that stage, it's a bad word, but they were exporting priests in the 60s and 70s to America. And then we had this major turnaround. So you had the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, upheaval, uh, resurgence in immigration, people had lost their businesses. There was a water crisis. And I suppose you could argue that there was a takeover by extreme forces. But if the faith had been very strong in Ireland to begin with, would these things have occurred anyway? Yeah, that's that's exactly the point. I mean, it, you know, in my my generation, I'm Generation X. A lot of us uh, on the right in my generation tend to look back at the 1960s as the watershed decade for this country, and it was uh, in terms of uh, bringing the counterculture to become the mainstream culture. Nevertheless. We can't idealize the 1940s and the 1950s because if things were so great back then in the church I'm talking about, they wouldn't have collapsed so suddenly. So uh, this, this sort of inner decadence is something that is hidden from a lot of us. We don't want to see it, uh, but there it is, and catastrophe uh, brings it out. I've heard uh, from so many Catholic friends, and as well as Protestant friends, but especially Catholic friends, saying that they're really worried how many... Catholics are going to come back to mass once COVID goes away uh, because they will have gotten out of the habit of it. Now, if you're not going to go back to mass, you weren't much of a Catholic to begin with. Nevertheless, Catholic churches and Protestant churches and all churches are filled with people who aren't particularly committed, but they still come and they can still hear the gospel. They can still receive the Eucharist, but maybe now they won't be coming back. We just don't know yet. Now, you're not Catholic, but you are a Christian. Oh, of course, yeah. I'm an uh, Eastern Orthodox Christian. I uh, I was a Catholic. So that's jo- closely related. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was a Catholic, John, <laughs> very um, devout practicing one for uh, some years. I, I had a very profound conversion to Catholicism in my 20s and took the faith very seriously and got heavily involved in politics and church politics, as well as, you know, Republican politics as a journalist. And then I was living in New York, working at the New York Post in 2001, when I started writing about the abuse scandal. And uh, this was before things broke big out of Boston. But a story had come to me about some Carmelites who had abused a boy there in in the Bronx. And I talked to the uh, father, uh, Tom Doyle, who is a really brave priest who has wrecked his career by standing up for victims. I interviewed him for my column, and after it was over, he said, Rod, I, I can tell that you are a faithful Catholic, and I want to warn you that if you keep going down this path of investigation, you are going to go to places darker than you can imagine. And I said, well, yeah. Father, thank you for saying that, but I feel like I have to do that uh, as a Catholic because this is my church and I want to expose, bring the light to some bad, to show some bad people up and clean things up as a journalist and as a new father because my wife and I just had our firstborn. And Father Doyle said, oh, I encourage you to do it, but I just want you to take care spiritually because this is dark stuff. Well, I, I didn't know what to make of that, uh, John, uh, but I, I kept on. And then I was over at National Review in 2002 when things broke big out of Boston. And then I dove deeply into writing about this. But Father Doyle was right. After four years of investigation, and I look, I knew about McCarrick in 2002. Uh, he had his mm-hmm. lawyer call up my, my editor at National Review say that Roger was working on this story about the Cardinal and the beach houses, and it's true, but we want to get him off the story. Well, my boss didn't take me off the story, but we also knew that we couldn't report it unless I had someone on the record or or some documents, which I was never able to get. 
anyway, I, I finally got to the point where my faith just collapsed. I never saw it coming. I, I thought yeah. that as long as I had the arguments for the Catholic faith uh, clear in my head, that my faith would be completely impregnable. It wasn't true. The, the thing I had to learn, John, uh, was that if you think the faith is just an intellectual thing, it's nothing more than a set of arguments and logic and syllogisms, then you are much more vulnerable than you realize. The faith has to also be lived out in, and has to get into your bones in a way that I simply didn't appreciate because you know, being an intellectual, I thought that's all there was to it. So uh, when I, I no longer could believe as a Catholic, I started attending an Eastern Orthodox church, not expecting that the Orthodox church would be free of sin. I think no church is free of this sin. But because as a Catholic, I, I knew that the Orthodox church had valid sacraments, and I simply went to pray and to, to get away from this anxiety and anger that was consuming me over over the Catholic Church. Eventually, I, my wife said, look, we let's stay here. We're not going back. And we did convert to Orthodoxy. This was 2006. But after I no longer felt responsible for the Catholic bishops and for cleaning up the mess in the Catholic Church, uh, I regained everything I loved about Catholicism. And I also was able to see, the Lord was able to show me my own fault and the collapse of my Catholic faith, which is primarily intellectual pride. I thought the Catholic Church is the best church, we're the smartest church, we have the best leadership, and on and on and on. It was completely naive, John, but that was how mm. I, as a young convert with stars in his eyes, thought of things. And I, I, uh, the Catholic Church didn't tell me to think of itself, think of the Catholic Church that way. That was me. And I'm not going to be that kind of Christian as an Orthodox Christian. I, I do my very best to try to build bridges of uh, faith and respect uh, across the, the the divide between Catholics and Orthodox, and also Protestants. Well, you kept the faith, but there's a lot of young people out there and Catholics who go to church on Sunday have read about one scandal after another, the, the McCarrick, a recent example, and they roll their eyes. They can't take it any longer. Yeah, this is also the problem in Poland. Uh, it hasn't received a lot of attention in the American media, but Poland is being roiled by one sex abuse scandal, clerical sex abuse scandal after another. And uh, this is going to have a tremendous impact on the young people in the church. Uh, I, Whenever I talk to people, even in my own church now, the Orthodox Church, you know, I, and in my own children, I tell them this, do not make the mistake of worshiping you know, the, the hierarchy or the church institution. We're not supposed to do that, but I didn't think I was doing that either. But I was. Uh, Jesus Christ is the only one who will never let us down. But uh, it's a, a very fine line to walk, John, between having proper respect for the church hierarchy and knowing that uh, the church is was founded by Christ and is necessary, but also not uh, not idealizing them to the point that we leave ourselves vulnerable to scandal. Humility is called for. Uh, now, we're not here to beat up the Catholic Church. There are many, many fine and wonderful Catholic priests and bishops, and I'm aware of many of them. I would have to say the vast majority do good deeds and good work. Yeah, I I think that we can't go the opposite direction and, uh, and demonize them all. Some of my dearest friends are priests, and Boy, you know, the, the only people who suffered more from the abuse scandal than victims and their families were the good priest who had nothing to do with it, but they were tarred too. And this is a cross that all of us Christians, not just Catholics, are have to carry right now. And this is the sort of thing that will be used in the times to come by, uh, by secularists to demonize us. To, they'll talk about these scandals in the Protestant churches, Orthodox churches, Catholic churches, to try to justify hatred of us and policies that take away from us or reduce our abilities to run our own our own institutions. It's coming. Rod, we're going to get to your book in a moment, but when you said Orthodox, I'm glad you didn't say you were a Russian Catholic. Somebody jokingly remarked some time ago that the U.S. Catholic Church is full of Russian Catholics. They rush to the Mass on Sunday, then they get to the <laughs> car park, and then they go to the uh, soccer practice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I hear you. I hear you. And uh, 
you know, we don't see that so much in the Orthodox Church in America because we're so small and we're made up heavily of converts. But when I went to Russia for the first time last year to do some reporting for my new book, that was the first time I had been to a, a country that was predominantly Orthodox. And John, I heard the same sort of complaints about the institutional church and church life from these Russian Orthodox that I'm so used to hearing from American Catholics and European Catholics. So, you know, the, we have these problems the world over. And one of the things I try to do with my work is to remind all Christians who are serious about their faith that we have so much more in common than divides us. And uh, to be honest, one thing I learned from talking to these people, whether it was a, a Russian Baptist, whether it was Catholics in Poland and Slovakia and the Czech Republic or Orthodox in Russia, that when the secret police came to take them to prison, they didn't come because they were Catholic, because they were Protestant, because they were Orthodox. They came for them because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And when you read the the, the uh, memoirs and the testimonies of Christians who were there in prison, they found tremendous fellowship with Christians from other confessions, their suffering in prison. That's the kind of uh, ecumenism that I think is a good ecumenism. It's not a false ecumenism of saying our differences don't matter. Our differences do matter. But it's a healthy ecumenism of saying that the things that bind us together are more important. We'll be right back with Rod Dreher, author of Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. That's your new book. Tell us about it. Why did you write it? Five years ago, John, I got a call from a doctor in Minnesota. Uh, never heard of this guy, but we had a mutual friend. He called me and said that his elderly mother lives with him and his wife. And earlier in her life, she had, was in Czechoslovakia. That's where she was born. And she had spent four years in a communist prison for her Catholic faith. And she later emigrated, and, uh, but now she was reaching the end of her life. And she said, son, the things that I'm seeing happen in America today remind me of what happened, remind me what happened when communism came to my country. And it scared the doctor because he could see how serious she was. And I thought, well, that seems alarmist to me, but okay, I'll, I'll look into it. So I contacted this couple I know uh, in, in the UK at, at Trinity College, Cambridge. They had defected the Bolabashes from Hungary in the 1960s. They're Catholics, and I, but I know they're solid people. I emailed them and said, Gabby and Bela, this is what the Czech woman says. Is there anything to it, or has she sort of lost her mind? They said, she's absolutely right. We sit here every day in our retirement watching the BBC, reading the newspapers, and we can tell you that this is exactly what it felt like when communism came to our country. So after that, and this was 2015, after that, John, every time I would travel to, for my work to a conference at some university or somewhere else, or even go over to Europe, when I would meet someone who grew up under Soviet communism, I would put the same question to them. Every single one of them says, yes, that's exactly what it feels like. And if you talk to them long enough, they'll get so angry at Americans for not taking them seriously. So what I did for this book is uh, started to look more deeply into what they're seeing and to try to figure out what what you know why they think this is going to happen but also and this is the second part of the book I went over to these former communist countries and talked to Christians who survived the the persecution to find out how they did it and what we Americans and western Europeans who believe in Jesus Christ what we can learn from them about how to withstand what's coming and you did exhaustive reporting. It's a beautiful book. I mean, I, I recommend it highly, and it comes on the heels of the Benedict option. I'm just looking randomly at different parts of the book. Today's totalitarianism demands allegiance to a set of progressive beliefs, many of which are incompatible with logic 
and certainly with Christianity. Mm-hmm. What, what did you mean by that? Well, for example, progressive uh, ideology today demands that we all say that a biological male is a woman if he declares he's a woman, you know, or or vice versa. You know, it demands that we recognize that marriage between uh, two people of the same sex is actually a marriage. I mean, this is, it's clearly against Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, but in the case of the of the transgender, it goes against science and basic logic. But this is the sort of thing that we are being forced to accept. I, uh, and also, there's the whole problem of racial ideology, which is taking over everywhere. You know, the, in Christianity, we are taught that God judges people on the basis of their heart. God teaches us to judge people, not on the basis of the color of their skin, but on their actions and on what's in their heart. But this new racist ideology that's coming out under the Orwellian name of anti-racism does just the opposite. It it says that white people are guilty of white privilege and white supremacy simply by virtue of being white, and on and on and on. I just saw this morning where Loudoun County, Virginia, which is the wealthiest county in the state of Virginia, this is suburban Washington, their school board, public school board is voting on a proposal that would institute this kind of training, race training, but also the other diversity training and policies within the school system. And if you disagree with it, if you're a teacher who disagrees with it or an employee, even if you voice your disagreement on the weekend in your own home, they can still fire you for disagreeing with it. This is completely totalitarian, but this is the sort of thing that we are being more and more forced to either affirm or at least fall silent and never object to, because that will turn us into enemies of the people, as the communists used to call them. And the fact that this is happening in America and we're all accepting it and nobody is raising an alarm about it is terrifying. And and you can see once you start digging to this sort of stuff, John, you can see why these people who grew up under communism are so alarmed. They can't believe that we're so naive. Well, Rod, you mentioned that in your book, um, some of these social media giants, the positions they take on uh, social issues and the pressure that puts on faithful Christians. How do they deal with a situation where they're told, okay, guys, we're going out marching next week at the Gay Pride Parade? How do they reconcile that with their with their beliefs and, and still stay on the job? It's going to be increasingly hard. I I have a friend, I didn't write about this in the book, uh, I don't think, but I have a friend in New York City. He's very high up in a corporation. He's a traditional Catholic, a Latin mass going Catholic. He has realized, he realized this over a decade ago, that the day is going to come when his silence on the issue of LGBT is not going to be enough. He said that they've the company has human resources or human resources department has for years been trying to get everybody to sign up as a as an LGBT ally within the company. And my friend said, listen, I have gay people I manage in my department. They're fantastic workers. I don't bring my religion into the workplace, but I don't also will not affirm things I don't believe. And things have gone fine till now. But my friend said the day is coming when I don't think that will be enough for this company. So to prepare for that day, he went out and got a real estate license so he would have something to fall back on to raise his family if he could no longer keep his job. Uh, In Poland last year, I spoke to Polish Catholics who were really suffering. uh, And they all worked for Polish branches of American or Western European multinational corporations. And American cultural politics were being brought into the workplace in Poland and these Polish branches. And so these faithful Catholics were being compelled to participate in LGBT pride celebrations at the risk of losing their job. Most of them had done that and had violated their consciences and they felt terrible about it. And uh, But that's, that's the price of getting ahead today in these well- compensating professions. Uh, we are, if Christians want to be involved in the law, they want to be involved in academia or um, uh, professions like that and medicine, they're going to increasingly have to uh, bend the knee to this sort of totalitarianism. I talked to one man, I quoted him in this in the book. 
He's a Catholic. He was uh, born and raised in the Soviet Union, emigrated to America, converted to Christianity, to Catholicism in America. He works high up in a corporate, uh, in a medical corporation, a hospital in the U.S. He told me that uh, it's the hospital's policy that anybody who comes into that hospital and demands surgery or hormones to change their sex uh, must be given them no questions asked, even if the physician believes that these hormones or this surgery will not help this person. And that that is extraordinary. There is no other case, no other medical situation in which a physician would be forced to go against his medical judgment for essentially political reasons. But that's what's happening. And the doctor said, please don't use my name. I have a family to raise. Well, he does, and he would have to give up his his plum position at that hospital if he's going to be true to his conscience. And I hope at some point he does do that because that, that to, he's living by a lie. Uh, a lot of us Americans are living by lies. We're going to have to come to the point at some, eventually when we are willing to lose our jobs uh, for the sake of standing up for what we know to be true. I'm wondering, is there room here for lobbies, Christian lobbies, a kind of trade unions, if you will, for practicing Catholics and the faithful to come to the defense of employees at large corporations who will not tolerate this kind of soft totalitarianism and defend them? You know, when I was in Warsaw, uh, Poland, uh, doing interviews, I went to the home of a woman named Sofia Romaszewska. She's 80 years old. She and her late husband were big activists in the Solidarity Trade Union movement. And she was uh, firm with me about how uh, people in the West, in American Western Europe, have got to start organizing now these sort of organizations to push for protecting individual liberties and religious liberties. I think one problem with that, though, uh, John, is that so many people within our own churches have already gone over, and they see uh, LGBT uh, affirmation as something that Catholics should do, Christians should do. I think there in New Jersey, uh, Cardinal Tobin has actually flown the pride flag, uh, maybe even from the cathedral, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but he's definitely- I believe that is correct. Right. So when when your own bishops won't even stand for you, when your own bishops treat you like you're uh, a bigot simply for standing up for what the church teaches, you're in real trouble. And look, this is happening too in Protestant churches. And even in the Orthodox Church, uh, an Orthodox convert, I know, uh, emailed me last week to say that uh, she was shocked when the question in a catechism class came up with the priest about transgender. And the priest said, oh, transgender is just another way of being who God made you to be. That is not what the Orthodox Church teaches, but people, they trust their, their, in the authorities, and they're credulous about it, and the authorities are under, authorities like bishops and theologians are, and priests are undermining what the church actually teaches. Now, we could start a very long conversation about some of the individual social media outlets like Facebook, Twitter, and so on, heavily socially liberal. Is there opportunities for conservatives to set up competing platforms for conservatives? Well, we had better take advantage of the freedom we have to do that now while we still have that freedom. Uh, Because one of the things that I fear is coming under this woke totalitarianism is uh, the companies, tech companies will not allow us to do that because they will see it, they will call it bigoted. And they will kick us off the uh, kick us off our platforms. That's already happening with some conservative groups, and I think it's going to continue. But we've got to be smart about this and figure this out, John. I I dedicate my book to this Catholic priest named Father Tomislav Kolakovich. Father Kolakovich died around 1990, but he in the 1940s he was working in Zagreb, Croatia. Uh, and doing anti-Nazi resistance work. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming after him, so he slipped out of the country, went to Slovakia, his mother's homeland, and uh, began teaching in the Catholic University in Bratislava, the capital. Kolakovich had trained in the Vatican to do missionary work in the Soviet Union, but so he knew the Soviet mindset. He told 
the young people in his classes. The good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the communists are going to be ruling this country when it's over. And the first thing they're going to do is come after the church. We've got to get ready. So what Father Kolakovich did was organize small prayer groups uh, and spread these groups all across the country. And they would come together, very devoted, to pray, to study, and also to learn the arts of resistance. Now, bishops in that country told him, oh, Kolakovich, you're being alarmist. Things will never get that bad. It won't happen here. But he refused to believe them, Father Kolakovich, because he knew how the communists were. Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell, uh, the communists came after all the priests, and it turned out that the network of faithful lay Catholics as well as uh, priests who were working with Kolakovich, they became the background, or the backbone, I should say, for the underground church for the next 40 years in that country. I think, John, that we are in a Kolakovich moment in this country, that we have to use the freedom that we have now. We don't know how long it's going to last. Use it now to start forming these groups and forming these networks to help each other resist and to keep our faith alive under persecution. Seems like there's a lot at stake in this coming election. <laughs> yeah, there really is. But I, I, there's a lot at stake, but there's also, uh, it, it can be deceptive. And let me tell you what I mean. I, um, you know, I'm a conservative. I've been very disappointed with a lot of things Donald Trump has done. But I also know that the, there's no question of what the Democrats are going to do when they get in power. They're completely on board with this woke militancy, the social justice militancy. Joe Biden tweeted out in January that there can be, quote, no compromise when it comes to transgender rights. Uh, that's just one aspect of it. And if they come into power, then they're going to go full speed ahead, um, pushing this throughout the executive branch. And if they gain power in the full power in the Congress, there's going to be very little place for people like us to hide. Now, having said that, I think people are mistaken if they think the only thing holding this back is Donald Trump, because there's so much of this stuff is coming at, a, at the cultural level beyond politics alone. It would If Donald Trump were a philosopher king, he could not stop all of this because it's coming to us in, in our local schools. It's coming to us in universities, through the media, through the entertainment media, and so on and so forth. Uh, this is a cultural revolution, not just a political one, but a cultural one. And uh, no president can could stop it. Having said that, I'm so grateful that Donald Trump has nominated and, and seen uh, approved by the Senate over 200 federal judges, because I believe that a solid federal judiciary that respects First Amendment rights to free speech and freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, will be the last line of defense social and religious conservatives have over the rest of this century from what the left plans to do to us. Well, President Trump may indeed be a flawed and imperfect individual and human being, but you do look at his record on pro-life, the greatest pro-life president of our time, uh, religious freedom issues, and those appointments. And now the Supreme Court, the composition could be changed in favor of family values, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I'm so grateful for that. And uh, Amy Coney Barrett, it would be just the crowning achievement, for, from my point of view, as a pro-life Christian, uh, crowning achievement of his presidency, if, please God, she gets... Uh, gets approved. Um, but it, things are so dramatic now, as you and I are talking, you know, Trump is in the hospital with coronavirus. Some of the me members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Republican members have uh, COVID. And uh, it's things are happening right now in the political realm that are what you might call it big history. And I think there's a spiritual battle here too, John. I'm not going to hide that. I, I think that what's going on here is not just po political and cultural. I think it's spiritual warfare. You know, how do we know that uh, President Trump hasn't had a religious conversion in the White House? And at one point, he was the Manhattan playboy, and he declared himself uh, pro-choice. And now he's done a, a U-turn. He's, he's passed some terrific pro-life legislation and pro-family legislation. 
Well, you know, I, I can't read his heart. Uh, I hope he has had a conversion or is at least starting on the road to conversion. But what we can know is his record. And on his record, we pro-life Christians have a lot to be grateful for, as you point out. And, uh, you know, frankly, I would rather have a, a, a flawed pagan who nevertheless appointed pro-life judges and you know protected religious liberty and so on and so forth than somebody who went to church every Sunday, as perhaps Joe Biden does, but nevertheless makes laws and makes appointments that run contrary to Christian truth and to the interest of the church. Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. There's some wonderful accounts uh, in your book uh, about persecuted Christians under communism who were locked up in prison. And you describe how faith sustained them. You even describe the miraculous miracles. One prisoner who uh, prayed uh, for cigarettes and he essentially converted all the inmates. Can you tell us about that? That was a a very... (laughs) Although I would have prayed for cigars and brandy, but we'll take the cigarettes. This is a fantastic story, and I think the best part of my book are stories just like this from real life. This came from a man named Alexander Ogorodnikov. He was from a prominent communist family, but in his 20s, -hmm. he he converted to Orthodox Christianity and uh, became a real activist in Moscow in the 1970s. Well, this was a scandal to the Soviets because he came from such a prominent family, and they made an example of him. They threw him in a very rough prison, and he was thrown into the cell with all these rough characters and He told them, and and I I relate the story in the book, but he told them, men, I'm here to to see you, to suffer with you as your brother, you know, but uh, God loves you and I want you to know that. And they all made fun of him. And one of them said, well, if your God is real, then ask him to send us cigarettes. We haven't had a smoke in a long time. Yeah, well, uh, Ogorodnikov told me, he said, I told them, well, I don't think you should be smoking. The body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. But okay, I God loves you so much that if that would lead you to salvation, we'll pray for it. So everybody stand still and let's pray. They prayed for a few minutes. After they prayed, the door, the, the little chute uh, opens in the prison door and the guard throws in a bunch of cigarettes to them. Those men, those inmates were so shocked that um, some of them converted and they said, your God must be real. But uh, that's kind of a funny story. But uh, Ogorodnikov tells a a much more sobering one involving a miracle. Uh, This is also in the book, but uh, it it really got to me when I heard him tell it to me sitting across from me in a hotel lobby in Moscow. He said that after years of suffering in the Gulag, beatings and torture and solitary confinement, he began to doubt his faith. He began to despair why God had sent him there. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I'm losing it. Well, he was awakened in his cell one night by an angel. This is what he said, by an angel. And the angel gave him a vision. In his vision, he saw a man, an inmate, walking away from him with his hands cuffed behind his back, a guard on either side. And Ogorodnikov was given to understand that this man was being taken to his execution. But he was going to be in paradise with our Lord because Ogorodnikov had witnessed to him for the faith and had converted him in prison. This happened night after night after night. Men that Ogorodnikov had had shared the faith with and who had come to know Christ and confessed Jesus were going to their death, but they were going to be with the Lord. And uh, But Ogorodnikov couldn't see their faces, and he thought that was really interesting. Well, Shortly thereafter, he went to another prison, and by then his faith had been restored because he knew that God had a plan for him, that God's plan was for him to be there to witness to these men. Uh, But Ogorodikov ended up in a, a small prison where he was the only inmate, and he was guarded at night by an elderly uh, retired prison guard who just came there at night because he had nothing better to do. One night, the prison guard came to Ogorodnikov hysterical, and he said, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. They come at night. They come at night. 
Well, Garodnikov said, hold on, hold on. Right, let's talk. What, what do you mean they come at night? This old guard told him about, as a younger man during the Stalinist period, being present with, at a, a clearing of the woods when the KGB had taken like 50 Russian Orthodox priests they had imprisoned, lined them up one behind each other, and held a gun to the head of each one of them and said, do you believe in God? If they said yes, the the KGB would fire the weapon, blow the guy's brains out, and the guy's brains would splatter onto the priest behind him. They went down one by one, one at a time, asking each priest, do you believe in God? And every one of them said, yes, I believe in God, and died there. This old guard at the end of his life was tormented by the looks on those men's faces as they were dying for God, dying for their faith. Ogorodnikov sitting there telling me this story in the hotel uh, lobby, he started crying. And Ogorodnikov's face is partly paralyzed from the beatings he received in prison. Ogorodnikov wept and said, I knew then why the Lord would not let me see the faces of the men going to their death in those visions. Because if I had seen their faces, it would have driven me crazy if I had seen the torment on their faces. Well, these are heavy stories, John, but this is these are the testimonies that these incredibly courageous Christian men and women brought out of the gulag. Extraordinary. Was this the same person who heard the confessions of the inmates, even though he's not an ordained priest? Right, yeah. He, he told them, look, I'm not a priest, but if you feel the need to confess, I'll be here and listen to it. But that's an extraordinary thing that these men, after lives of, of horrible crime and degradation, because this good man was thrown in among them, this Christian man, they felt the call to conversion and they did the best they could. Um, and that, I believe, is a sort of faith that all of us now must undertake to build within ourselves because we just don't know what's coming. I, one of the heroes of this book is. Um, a man named Sylvester Kirchmeri. Dr. Kirchmeri was a young Catholic physician in Slovakia. He was part of Father Kolakovich's underground uh, movement. And he was thrown in prison for in the early 50s for what he did. And uh, he said in his memoir that uh, he was so grateful that he had memorized scripture uh, before he went in there because they wouldn't give him a Bible. But memorizing the scripture as a Catholic had prepared him for this suffering. And uh, he prayed, and he prayed with other people there, and he witnessed to them in prison. But he said something, too, that's so important to us and has been personally important to me as I've tried to keep my faith strong through COVID. Kirchmeri said, I had to resolve never to let myself feel sorry for myself, because if I gave in to self-pity, that would have been the end of me. He said, I, I said rather that I would accept any suffering as suffering for the Lord. I will be the Lord's probe in here and I will see what he wants me to learn from this. That attitude, which you don't hear much anymore, but you used to hear it from the old school Catholics to offer it up. That's what got him through prison. And he said, that's what got so many of them through imprisonment and torture because they accepted their suffering as a sort of gift from God. We'll be right back for the conclusion of my interview with Rod Dreher, author of Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Turning again to the U.S. Catholic Church, it's been suggested the way the church 
is regulated in the United States and in the Western world, the tax-exempt status of the Catholic Church. We're not suggesting that that should be eliminated by any means. And also, you look at some of the uh, school programs and other programs in major cities which get a helping hand, if you will, from municipal authorities. Sometimes you imagine places the church in a dodgy position that they may have to walk a tightrope to keep the powers that be satisfied. Do you think that plays into it sometimes and maybe explains why the bishops sometimes are less than forthright in dealing with lawmakers? Yeah, I think that certainly can be the case. And sometimes bishops have taken a strong stand. In Boston, for example, when they came after the church for refusing to uh, adopt uh, babies out through through church agencies to same-sex couples, they just got out of the uh, adoption business. And that's a terrible thing that they had to do it, that the church had to do that. But the principle was, was important to defend. But I think that what we're going to see as the church becomes more liberal, um, we are going to see uh, certain bishops, progressive bishops, making these compromises and justifying it by saying, well, if the church wants to continue to do the, its good and important work, then we have to compromise in this small way. And it's no big deal in the end, but it's a very big deal in the end, because once you go down that road of compromising, or once you start convincing yourself that it's not an important compromise, that's the road to hell right there. I think that we are going to see churches in this country uh, who refuse to go along with the LGBT uh, ideology, for example, we're going to see them lose tax-exempt status. That's not going to happen right away, but I think it will happen. We saw in one of the Democratic debates, Beto O'Rourke uh, said that he absolutely wanted to see churches lose their tax-exempt status. Uh, I, I think it's going to come, and young people will accept this and will want to see it as a matter of justice, but it will free up churches to not be so dependent on the government, and it will be a, a, a form of purification. I mean, look, Pope Benedict said in 1969, when he was just Father Ratzinger, he warned that the day was coming when the church would lose all its wealth, all its privileges, all its power, and it would lose maybe even most of its, uh, of its parishioners. But this will be a time of purification, and those who remain with the church, those who remain with our Lord through this dark night, will be a light to the world because they will have been tested and they'll know why they believe and they're willing to suffer anything for the sake of, of our Lord. That's the kind of church that is going to emerge, John, uh, among Catholics, among Protestants, among Orthodox in this country, once we have to really suffer for our faith, suffer real deprivation and even persecution, most people are going to fall away. But those who remain will be a, a, a remnant that will be the seeds for the renewal when this darkness passes. Rod, we're going to just dip in briefly to the book here before we wrap up, uh, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. You mentioned the roots of totalitarianism and even this soft totalitarianism that you refer to, loneliness and the um, social atomization of the individual. We see much more of that today in our social media culture. Everybody has friends on Facebook, but they don't have real face-to-face -face friends. Can you just explain that to us and what you are describing? Sure. I, In researching this book, I read a very famous book of political theory called The Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt. She wrote it in 1951. Uh, Arendt was one of the great political theorists of the 20th century. After the end of the Second World War, she wanted to know why it was that people in Russia and people in Germany had surrendered to totalitarianism? What factors were there? And she came up with a list of them. The most important factor, she said, was mass loneliness and mass alienation. Because what it did was it severed people, that, that phenomenon severed people from a sense of social solidarity. It severed them from the community around them. It severed them from any link with the past and institutions and, and practices that gave them meaning. And it made them open to 
any sort of radical ideology that could give them what they needed. It could give them a sense of connection. It could give them a sense of meaning. And it could do something with this deep anxiety that they felt over their loneliness. Well, right now, this is one of the major issues that we have in our societies. The social network, the social media is a sham. As you say, John, that's not real society. We, we can see now uh, off the charts levels of depression, especially among the young. They don't have anything to look forward to. They feel that their lives aren't going anywhere. And so they're grasping for something. The social justice ideology that has become so popular with them, it's a lie, but it's a substitute religion. It's a religion, a fake religion for young people who have no sense of religion, have no sense of self, who are desperate for a sense of community and meaning. And we can only really fight it as Christians if we understand that what we're dealing with is not a political ideology as much as a false religion. Rod, you do most of your writing these days in Louisiana. That's where you live and you grew up. You had spent quite a considerable period of your career in New York, quite a difference in places. Quite a difference. I, I was in New York from 98 to 2003. I, I began my my married life in New York. Right after we got married, my wife and I moved there, and I absolutely loved it. We were blessed to be there during a, a time of, of flourishing in the city. And uh, I was there on 9-11 when I, I was on the Brooklyn Bridge rushing towards the towers from my home in Brooklyn when the first tower came down. And I tell you, if you lived through that back then and you suffered along with the rest of the city, you'll never forget it. and You'll never lose your love for New York. But uh, it was time finally for us to leave and move back south to be closer to our family and to be in a place where we could afford to have kids. But I, I'll never lose my love for New York. And uh, I'm it's just got a place in my heart. That's wonderful to hear. I, uh, I'm also fond memories myself of visiting New Orleans. I have a lot of relatives there. My late uncle, Jack Brennan and Rennie, uh, lived there most of their life, and I have lots of first cousins. And it's uh, what's fascinating about New Orleans is it's a very big Catholic city, and you don't typically think of cities and large towns and areas in the south as being Catholic, but maybe Christian, obviously. Oh, yeah. It's a big Catholic city because it was founded by the French and then by the Spanish. And uh, it it's so deeply, deeply Catholic. Even the Protestants there are Catholic. Um, and, and then the Irish came in. The Irish and the, the Italians came in in the 19th century. And uh, you, you can't go anywhere in that city without seeing statues of the Blessed Mother or statues of saints or uh, and people are so deeply, deeply entwined with the Catholic Church. It really does feel like a city in, an, in another country, you know. And I, I think I call, say that as a as a compliment to it. I, I love being down here in Louisiana. Uh, we really are uh, unique among the American states. I'll say one thing really quick about New Orleans. You'll appreciate this. After Hurricane Katrina, uh, this famous architect from Miami was invited to come in and help the city figure out how to rebuild. And he himself is Cuban, uh, an immigrant from Cuba. And he, he wrote that he really couldn't get a bead on the city of New Orleans until he started walking around. And he was going down one neighborhood and saw some banana trees, and it finally hit him. This city reminded him of Cuba, of his youth in Cuba. And he said, finally, I realized that if you look at New Orleans as an American city, well, then it's it's really so badly governed. It's dirty. They can't get the streets repaired. It's It's really badly run. But if you look at it as a Caribbean city, well, then it's the most prosperous and well-governed city of the Caribbean. So that's that's how he, he looked at it. And I, I think there's real wisdom there. A big uh, devotion, a big Marian devotion in New Orleans. I don't know if you know the story, but you probably do. The, the bleeding Madonna in one of the local churches just coinciding with the introduction of Roe v. Wade. Uh, I don't know if that was ever proven as miraculous. I, I have not heard of that, but I would not be surprised. I mean, look, down here in South Louisiana, in New Orleans and in South Louisiana in general, people are so much closer to the world of the spirit and the world of the mystical. Maybe some other time I could come on and tell you stories about this exorcist I met here in Louisiana yeah. back when I was coming into the Catholic Church. Uh, he lived way down in the bayou, a little old Italian exorcist. And 
I asked him once for a story I was working on. I said, how do people find you, Father? Uh, you're not like, it's not like you're hanging out a shingle. And, and when they do, how do you convince them that they're dealing with the demonic? He said, I'm so difficult to find, Rod, that when people do find me, they don't need convincing that what they're dealing with is real. <laughs> Very good. Uh, it's the weeping Madonna. Um, look that up. A fascinating story. They claim the Madonna cried tears just around the time of introduction of Roe v. Wade and the nationalization of the abortion industry in America. Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. A great read. I highly recommend it. This comes on the heels of the runaway success of the Benedict Option. Well, that concludes this episode and my interview with Rod Dreher, author of Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. But Rod will be back. Yes, he'll be back to talk to us about his next writing project and what might be in store. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Slaunta. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.